Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we live in a world full of plastic, and now researchers in the Netherlands have found microparticles of plastic in human blood for the very first time. We look into what exactly that means. We unfold the federal government's new carbon emissions reduction roadmap to find out where it takes us. Will we get there on time? Is the trip worth it? And just how rocky a journey it promises to be when it comes to trying to balance the fight against climate change with Canada's role in global energy security. But first, we meet Canadian-based volunteers who delivered three fully equipped donated ambulances to Kyiv and then stayed to set up a makeshift hospital where they're treating civilians and teaching others on the front lines of the fight against Russia to save lives. The images of destruction from Ukraine, the indiscriminate targets targeting of civilians, affects us all. For some, though, particularly those trained to operate in a conflict zone, there's also a tremendous urge to help, knowing that they have skills that can and will save lives. My next guests are both military veterans, one with the Canadian Armed Forces, another as a British Army medic. They both now live and work in Canada, one in B.C., one in Ontario. Chris Kettler and Jordan Searle in mid-March went on a different kind of mission part of a small team that flew to England to pick up three fully equipped and donated ambulances to drive them to Ukraine. So we're delivering uh, ambulances and medical supplies, and we're hoping to maybe pick up some patients and bring them out if they have to be ambulatory or not. Amazing, and then you say you're flying home afterwards? Yeah, well, yeah. we don't Eventually, know how for long, yeah, we're yeah. going to stay as long as we can and help it as long as we can. Well, they're still there. They set up a makeshift hospital with trauma, surgical, and minor injuries capability in an old apartment block. They're delivering care to civilians. They're using their skills to provide training to others, but their medical supplies are almost non-existent. It can be a challenge to find the right moment to speak with people on or near the front lines in Kyiv. So we arranged for a call between Jordan and uh, Jordan and Chris and myself this morning, Pacific time. They were sharing their story and their thoughts about what they've seen, what they've been doing, when suddenly the reality of where they are became very real and they had to go. So here is my conversation earlier with Chris Kettler, a Canadian Forces veteran and Canada Border Services Agency officer, and Jordan Searle, a former British Army medic who works in Ontario as a paramedic with Orange Air Ambulance. They spoke to me earlier from Kiev. Thank you so much both for taking the time to speak with me tonight. God, they're our pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. So I guess the, the basic question, just what's, what's an average day look like and what have you set up in Kiev to try to help with, uh, with the medical needs there? So we were sort of tasked uh, roughly when they found out uh, our uh, skills, equipment and abilities from Lviv and we were tasked, can we come to uh, Kiev to help set up a rudimentary uh, field hospital and sort of trauma station for them, um, in which we were like, yeah, absolutely no problem. Uh, there embarked a rather perilous sort of nine hour journey at about 120 kilometers an hour with a special police unit uh, escort. Uh, luckily, we were in three ambulances, so it wasn't too bad. Uh, but as you can imagine, moving three rather brightly colored vans, in essence, uh, across a war torn country with constant fighting along the route uh, was a bit of a challenge in the first place. Uh, luckily, we got here all in one piece. And we were sort of ushered to uh, what is known here as a territorial defense battalion. Now, in essence, these are local volunteers, Ukrainian, not foreign fighters, uh, all Ukrainian citizens that volunteer to defend their sort of assigned area under the Kiev military doctrine. Um, included in this is several members of the uh, regular army, but majority of them are made up of uh, what would 
the loose term would be militia members. They receive basic rudimentary training um, into in soldiering and very, very limited in medical training. This is what we've sort of been uh, asked to specialize in for them. So we were given a building that is, in essence, was the community dentist and sort of healthcare center. So think of the place that any regular Canadian would go for postnatal care, general practitioner woes, and sort of a minor injury urgent care center. Um, and as such, we were given some empty rooms and told, can you help us? Uh, and since then, we've managed to now build a five-bed um, trauma slash emergency department, much like you would find in any Canadian hospital um, going at present, uh, with every piece of equipment that you would have in a Canadian hospital, minus the fact that most of it is probably 10 years older than what most of you would see in an average department. Um, from that there, we've been training uh, members of the local area and the local healthcare staff, so between dentists, uh, dental hygienists, uh, RNs, healthcare assistants, and even the veterinarians in how to provide emergency aid, along with some advanced trauma care uh, to the citizens in the area. So although it's uh, mainly a military facility or a rudimental military facility, is actually serving the local population because the nearest hospital is over 10 kilometers away and they have zero access to emergency services in forms of uh, the uh, ambulance service, so paramedics and or any kind of fire department at all for helping put out any of the fires. So the local population rely heavily on this facility as well, not just for emergency care should when uh, the shelling hits any of the local areas here, but also for their primary health care and sort of day-to-day -day needs as anyone else would need uh, help with. So as you can imagine, it's been a bit of a monumental task. Uh, luckily, my role in Orange is, you know, most people only think of the uh, Toronto helicopter and the big city skyscrapes. Uh, but majority of the task is for Orange is in rural Canada. So, you know, the First Nation and remote communities uh, north of sort of Sudbury onwards. So we're pretty adept at sort of working in an austere environment and making the most limited medical resources in order to make the most and also the health equality for everyone. So between that, uh, we've managed to set this facility up train the staff in basic care and continued care. And at the same time, people like Chris and the rest of my team have been out training not just the local population, but also the Territorial Defence Force in what's known as TCCC, which is Tactical Combat Casualty Care. So that's the use of tourniquets, wound packing uh, and bandaging, as well as sort of general emergency aid for people suffering from traumatic uh, injuries. So it doesn't always have to be uh, bullets, bombs and blasts. Uh, you know, there's obviously still ongoing issues here outside of the war as well. People are still having general medical emergencies. And at the same time, we've also trained volunteers to crew two of the ambulances we've brought here as well. So as you can imagine, it's been a bit of a whirlwind round robin um, and a little bit sort of outside the normal scope of what most people in Canada would think a paramedic is sort of able to do, let alone um, a couple of guys that have all been in the military together. So yeah. we've managed to pull it all together so far, and it seems to be working perfectly for them. Yeah, Chris, tell me, I mean, you, you spent time in Afghanistan. I think a lot of Canadians, I spent time in Afghanistan. I think a lot of Canadians are somewhat aware of how that worked. How different is this? Oh, I mean, uh, that's the thing. We talk about veterans and having military experience, but outside of Korea, nobody's fought in a conventional war. Um, it's, it's obviously much, much different. I mean, as Jordan mentioned to you here, 
Um, what I've been doing mainly is the training side of the house with the local defense force and with some civilian population as well. And uh, just sitting down day to day, walking these guys through those TCCC skills and how to keep themselves alive. Uh, the other day, I had a young gentleman, he was 18 or 19 years old. And he said to me, well, straight to my face, he was one of the very few there that could actually speak English. Um, I don't want to die, were some of the only words he got across to me. And uh, I mean, it's, it's a very different beast. It's, it's nightmarish to have the civilian population mixed in with the military and these, these bombings and the air raids that are coming in. They're being targeted indiscriminately. And I think that would be the big difference, seeing this beautiful city um, that's being turned into a war zone all around us. We know there's been talk that, that, that the Russians are pulling back, but I gather you're not seeing evidence of that yet. The fighting continues, or at least the indiscriminate showing continues. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the early reports was that the Russians are pulling back. Now, obviously, we can't see Russians on our street as such, but we can see Russian fighting positions from sort of mm-hmm. roughly where we are. Um, and obviously, just before we spoke to you, were several large explosions in the uh, uh, IDF or indirect fire uh, air raid siren, as, as most people know, has been going off sort of constantly. The last sort of three days, the shelling has really intensified. Yes, we've kind of seen the opposite. And hopefully it, will, hopefully it will calm down, I think, in a little bit. But unfortunately, the local population here don't believe any of it. And it is. And I, I'm sort of on their waves at length now. Unless we physically see it, it, it hasn't happened. Of course. I mean, they're tired of false promises. They've had a lot of them over the past three weeks. I can imagine. I mean, just tell me a bit about your motivation to go. What, what was it? Uh, obviously, you saw what was happening and decided there was a need. I know you went to, to bring those ambulances. You drove them across Europe. Um, what was the what was the motivation to be there, and and how important do you feel like the work you're doing is? It's you're you're saving lives quite literally. Well, I mean, you're exactly right. From from our armchairs in Canada, it's very easy to sit back and watch these things happening on the news, and it's very easy. And I'm not trying to say you know that people aren't doing what they can. Not at all. People help out as they can. Um, we just happen to be in a, a very specific position where we believe we had the skill sets, the resources, and the ability to genuinely do something about it. And my motivation, it's, it's my children. I'm trying to raise them to try to make this world a better place. And I think to myself, what kind of man would I be if I didn't set that example for my children and show them that if you have the ability to do something about it, to stop people being harmed in the world, you have a responsibility to get up and do something about it if you can. And that's why I'm here for, for my kids. So hopefully they don't have to do the same kind of work in the future. I was going to say, I mean, both of you have seen war. Um, how much different an experience, and you were describing it earlier, Chris, just in terms of this being a conventional war, but how much different is just the, 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 sense, of the sense you have being there? I mean, I think anytime anyone's in a war zone, it's 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 discon, you know sort of discombobulating to use a, a colloquialism. How has this yeah. been for the two of you, given your experience? It's been very interesting. I mean, I spent quite a lot of my army career in the Middle East, as uh, as a lot of other soldiers did during that period of time. Um, it's very different here. You know, you can't complain it. You know, you can say, "Oh, it's a great soldier in Afghanistan and Iraq," but this is a very different fighting environment. I think. The big thing here is, you know, the welcoming of the Ukrainian people. Mm. When we pulled into the, the local area, such as where we are, they were cheering and clapping from their balconies. They were out on the street because we were the first support they had seen in over a month. Now, their own government is obviously stretched thin and they're trying their best. Um, but we were the first unit to be this far forward outside of an American surgical group, which is working in central Kiev. Mm 
um, at a higher level, obviously, um, but they hadn't seen anything like this. And they were, oh, they couldn't understand that we were just giving this equipment and our expertise away because they've had so many people come and almost take advantage of the situation, Absolutely. which unfortunately happens during conflict at the best of times. But these people here are, are some of the most welcoming people ever. And I don't just mean that just because they're in a bit of a conflict and a bit of a bind. They generally uh, have so much thank and support for us and everyone around the world. And I'm quite happy to say that everyone here, they would put their life on the line to protect us should it come to it. Yeah, that's the surreal part. I mean, both myself and Jordan have worked as part of a large military, military organization. And now we're kind of on the flip side of that, where we're trying to help the local population just keep their country together and stay alive. And being on the opposite side of a larger military that's, I mean, hammering these cities day in and day out and seeing these people walking around and trying to carry on their normal lives in the midst of it. You know, they're going to the store, they're going grocery shopping, they're trying to go to work. And then an air raid siren goes off and everybody ducks and covers and the all clear signal sounds and they, they carry right on again. We didn't get that um, when we were in Afghanistan. It was more directed. And again, obviously, the Canadian forces and the British military were more concerned about keeping the civilian population alive um, than apparently the Russian military is. So it's a very different beast than anything either of us or any of the team members have ever experienced. One of the things you mentioned earlier, Chris, was just a real lack of supplies. Now, we've been obviously talking a lot about in Canada, we've been talking a lot about the the broad humanitarian effort to get stuff into Ukraine. But from where you're sitting, I gather you're not seeing much of it. No, I mean, frankly, we're not seeing uh, any of it. As Jordan said earlier, the only supplies we're seeing are the supplies that we physically go and drive out to get ourselves. And frankly, it's, it's luck of the draw. The way we've teed up with these people who have these supplies, and again, we're talking about small amounts, but everybody's doing what they can. Um, it's, it's just been through blind luck. I mean, how I tagged in and, and myself and Jordan tagged in with another member of our team uh, to begin with was just driving down the road and somebody pulled over and said, hey, um, if you guys are heading to Ukraine, you should talk to this guy. And that's how this entire thing came together to begin with. Um, so when it comes to the supplies coming in, we, we haven't seen any. Mate, sorry to stop you. There's small arms and mortar attack happening just by here. So we just have to cut short. We need to be out on the ground. Sorry. Yep. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye now. <laughs> And that was it. My conversa- conversation with Jordan and Chris came to an end. Small arms and mortar attacks nearby. So they cut our conversation short, but fascinating the work they're doing on the ground. We'll get an update from them as soon as we can. We're going to talk microplastics now. Those tiny plastic particles, they are absolutely everywhere on Earth. Scientists have detected microplastics from river deep to mountain high. But now for the first time, researchers in Holland have found microplastics in human blood. A study in the Netherlands that was published in the journal Environmental International, Environment International rather, researchers found plastic in the blood or microplastics in the blood of 17 of the 22 participants, 77%. Now that's a very small sample. We don't know where they were exposed but it could have big implications. The study's author says, quote, our study is the first indication that we have polymer particles in our blood. It's a breakthrough result. That's Dick Vithak, an an eco-toxicologist at uh, a university in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam. He says, we have to extend the research and increase the sample sizes and the number of polymers assessed. Now, we know that microplastics are everywhere because scientists are finding them everywhere. What we don't know is if they're harmful to us. So joining me now to discuss the research and what it could signify is Juan Jose Alava. He is an exo 
toxicologist and the founder and principal investigator of the Ocean Pollution Research, the Ocean Pollution Research Unit at the Institute for Oceans and Fisheries at the University of British Columbia. Thanks so much for being here tonight. I appreciate it, Juan. Juan Jose. Uh, thank you, Ben. Thank you for the opportunity and the invitation to contribute to these uh, new findings. And as you said, this is uh, something that is kind of striking for probably the, the population of the, of the world. And uh, and it's important because it demonstrates that basically this tiny plastic particle can basically trespass or permeate through membranes, right? And um, we need to be aware that humans are exposed to different kinds of fibers in at work or uh, in the environment con environmental conditions. And it can be through inhalation, through ingestion, and even dermal contact, depending on the size of the particle. So one of the, <clears throat> the aspects that you mentioned in your summary is basically indeed it's a small sample size, but yet the prevalence is important because from the 22 uh, volunteers that basically donate blood for this study, 17 basically, uh, uh, in 17 of them were, were, were detected this particle, that's 72, more than 72 percent. And the implications are important because it demonstrates that uh, particles can get, be inhalated or ingested and can be basically uh, transferred to the bloodstream, which is of particular concern because the bloodstream basically irrigates the human body and many important tissues and organs. And depending on the size and the shape of the plastic particle plus the associated additive or chemical, then we can talk about the kind of toxicity, right? And remember uh, our ecotoxicological principle using human toxicology or pharmacology or wildlife toxicology is that the dose makes the poison. So we don't know yet what is the dose or the concentration or basically the amount of this plastic, tiny plastic particle that can produce harm or can produce a mode of toxic action or inflict a kind of, of, of hazard effect in, in the human body at, right. at the tissue, at the cellular, tissular or organ level. So the, the, the uh -huh, you go ahead. Yeah, sorry, because I, I know we've been researching this a long time, potential harms of microplastics. Yes. I mean, we've been reading about it. I know most of those studies are sort of in your main area of study, which is marine life, right? Yes, basically most of the weather evidence is based in marine organisms. And also there are uh, some studies doing research, experimental research with rodents, um, mouse or rats. There are mammalian models that are used basically to test whether a given pollutant is toxic. In this case, there is some research on microplastic, and there is some uh, impact at the physiological, uh, also uh, at the reproductive level, that demonstrate that basically this microplastic can cause some harm. And also that depends on the size. And uh, as I mentioned, at the shape, you have, for example, a shape of microplastic that is sharp or can cause some injury or can cause some inflammation, then our immune system will react against that kind of inflammation. And then we can find some infection, secondary infection for other bacteria. So, and that's important when we think about that this is particle around 700 nanometer that were detected in this study, they can go through several kinds of tissues. And that's also important because depending on the definition of nanoparticle, uh, we might say, okay, this 700 nanometer fall 
under the definition of nanoparticles that for some researcher or some, or some communities say that it's from one nanometer to one dozen nanometer. But in other kind of school say that it's from one nanometer to 100 nanometer. So depending right. on the definition of range of nanoparticle or nanoparticle, nanoplastic particle, then we can define whether these are really nanoplastic or not. Usually right. the last definition is between one nanometer to one dozen nanometer. In that the case, then the dimension that they detected here, 700 nanometer fall under the category of nanoparticles. Uh, but so nanoparticles, not, not microparticles, right, I get you. Yeah, but, um, but, but yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I, I think one of the things that comes up, and this has been mentioned in other in other articles about this, is that, of course, you know, we eat sand, we eat dust, we inhale all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, stuff. Yes. Um, so, and and we found microplastics, I gather, literally everywhere now. They're everywhere. The top of Everest, bottom of the ocean. Um, so how concerned, I mean, how important do you think this discovery of, of nanoplastics in human blood really is? Well, it, it really say that uh, we are living in an age of plastic at such point that some researchers call the plasticine. So the plasticine is called the age of plastic in, in the Anthropocene because it's basically a marker of our ecological footprint in terms of the plastic consumption and production. And that is of concern because the more consumption of plastic, there is more supply. And that means that we will be eternally connected to plastic. Um, the polymer, the kind of polymer, are also important to consider because some of these polymer, basically most polymer, are coming from the petrochemical industry. So if we think about how we can start mitigating the problem of microplastic pollution or large plastic pollution in the ocean, for example, there are like more than 5.25 trillion pieces of particle floating in the ocean. That's huge. And that's only in the surface. If we go onto the bottom of the ocean, it's probably to two particle or pieces of particle per square meter. That's a lot of plastic. So we have hotspots in the world. And the trophic transfer of, of, of this micro microplastic or nanoplastic is, is evident, right? So it, it's a problem. And it's part also of a much bigger problem in terms of the other kind of pollution that we have in the ocean and plus uh, climate change that exacerbate the bioaccumulation and biomagnification of pollutants in food webs. So it's, right. it's basically a, pro, a problem in terms of persistence, uh, bioaccumulative nature, and also toxicity. We, we call right. this the So let me, I'll, I'll just stop you a quick second. I'll, I'll just bring you back one second just so we don't lose our audience too much here in the science. Okay. So I mean, yeah, I mean at sure. the end of the day, what we're talking about here is, 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 is tiny, tiny particles of plastic that are everywhere around us. They've now yes. been found in human blood. I guess what it really boils down to is we don't know how prevalent it is, and we don't know really how dangerous it is, so we should really study it. But we've oh, arrived yeah. at a point now where we've started to identify the fact that in the plasticine, as you call it, um, human blood is now also carrying evidence of these tiny particles of plastic, and we just don't really know what that means. We do know a bit more about what it means for the ocean, right? Yes, that's that's correct. And more research needs to be done at the human, at the public health level, to see the, the, the mode of toxic action of these uh, nanoparticle or microplastic that are being found in the bloodstream. Remember that the, there was also a previous study last year that microplastic were also uh, detected in the human placenta. 
So it can also have implication to the maternal transfer, right? If that was found in placenta, it means there can be some transfer from mother to the fetus or to the babies. So that's that's right. that's very important to to to, to to consider as well. Right. I mean, one of the stats I saw that was interesting is we produce almost 400 million tons of plastic each year already. So, you know, and it's certain, I guess, different scientists have said it's certain there's a level of, of exposure of exposure in all species at this point. So where do we go from here then? If you're, if you're, uh, if you're, you're obviously, you're an, you're an exotoxicologist as well. Uh, where do you take this, this finding here of, of, uh, of these nanoparticles of, of plastic in human blood, where do you go next to figure out what the co- what at least what the causes and what the harms may be, if there are any harms? Well, I think one of the first things that we need to think about is the prevention, the prevention in our way and how we consume the products. Um, and that need to be it's pretty much related to single-use plastics, right? Um, plastic bottles. Because if you see this study, polyethylene therathalate, it's basically the plastic made that made a plastic bottle. So I think we need to change our behavior, changing from a plastic construction to a more a cleaner, sustainable product other than plastic. And also you find right. that there is polyethylene and other kind of poly, polymer like STN. So that's of, that's of concern. So I, I think the, 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 field, the first role of thumb is to basically changing our behavioral construction of, of plastic to avoid the ingestion of plastic uh, in human or the inhalation of plastic. Uh, we still need to know more about the toxicity, but I think we should focus on the precautionary approach. And the precautionary approach say that we don't have to wait until all the harm is done or bad thing happen to take action to prevent, to avoid or mitigate the harmful impact of substances, right? And that's a principle also in pharmacology. So it's important to keep in mind that uh, uh, prevention is better than cure. And as long as we are depending on a plastic economy, we will be consuming a lot of plastic. At least there is some step here in Canada to basically eliminate single-use plastic and plastic bags, uh, single-use uh, pack- packaging, you know, all these uh, stereophones that are used for packing food. So if we can eliminate that, we can start really talking about to to prevent exposure to to plastics uh, uh, with, with implication for public health, basically. Juan Jose Alaba, thank you so much for your time and your insight tonight. This is a fascinating subject. I'm sure we'll be seeing more research into this in the years ahead. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. So Ottawa laid out its plan to curb greenhouse gas emissions for the rest of this decade to meet its ambitious 2030 reduction targets. The 2030 Emissions Reduction Plan, as it's called, targets the oil and gas, transportation and electricity sectors in particular to try to bring down emissions by 40% below 2005 levels by 2030. It leans heavily on technology, including a huge push for zero emission vehicles, as we've been talking about tonight. So is it achievable? Is it advisable? The Prime Minister says so. Big oil lobbyists have had their time on the field. Now it's over to the workers and engineers who will build solutions for their sector, for their communities, and for their kids. Sounds nice. So does it pave the way for a smooth energy transition or a particularly rough ride? Joining me now is Heather Exner-Pureau, a senior policy analyst with the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 
So, I mean, I guess the big question, we have a roadmap at long last. Is it uh, going to drive us off a cliff or is it, a good, is it a good plan? You've been concerned about energy security and transition a lot. I know a lot of late. Um, the invasion of Ukraine's only made things worse, I would suspect. Where does this roadmap take us? I mean, it's nice sentiments, but I don't know if you would find anyone that works for a utility or works for a manufacturing company or, or works in the oil industry who would think that it's realistic. Um, and and it's, it's simply a matter of, you know, getting to uh, a net zero grid in the timelines they're talking about, getting electric vehicles at the rate that they're talking about those products simply don't exist. The mines don't exist in the world, you know, to get us to these levels, uh, you know, that the government is talking about. And, and it takes years, you know, to get the environmental assessment to build some of these projects. We, to the, the transmission lines we would have to build out, the new power generation. Um, there's no way to get that done by 2030. And I'm, I'm sure the government knows that, but, um, you know, but yet they put out this plan. So it is... It is, it is concerning that it, it seems to me so divorced from reality. And I was thinking, I mean, one of the things we've been talking about a lot lately, and we will talk about this, we ha- we'll go to the news quickly and then come back and, and, and call, talk about this further, is that we, in, in fact, even in the time that this plan has been put together, the sort of uh, outside factors that we're looking at, such as the invasion of Ukraine, trying to wean the West off Russian oil and gas, has gotten even more acute. So we had even just last week is the policy of the G7, it was which is the policy of the Prime Minister Trudeau, his name was on it, calling for oil producing countries to act responsibly and increase their deliveries and referred specifically to OPEC. But obviously, Canada is an oil producing country. We have the third largest reserves in the world uh, and we're a huge exporter. So when the government talks about things like putting a cap on emissions or reducing emissions, I think people need to appreciate that that means new projects don't come online. And the new projects that are coming online are LNG, hydrogen. But the oil sands already exist and they're already working to bring down uh, their emissions and carbon capture will help that. And the extent the government can help with carbon capture, that's good. But the new projects that we are not able to bring online are the ones that a hungry and energy hungry world needs now and are ones that are relatively more emissions free, would be displacing coal. And so, you know, Canada does not exist in a bubble. Our emissions do not exist in a bubble. We need to think about what we can be doing globally uh, to provide that energy and to provide the the best kind of environmental kind of uh, pedigree of that energy as possible. And that's not reflected in this plan. Heather, we're going to... Go to the news and come back and carry on this conversation. I have lots I want to ask you about. We talked about EVs already. I want to ask you about that plan. And also just, um, you know, what needs to be done to try to balance our climate ambitions and our energy security. That's coming up. I'm back with Heather exner Piro, a senior policy analyst at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. We're talking about the federal government's uh, carbon reduction roadmap released today to cut emissions by 40% from 2005 levels uh, by 20. 30, which is sounds, again, like a high number. Uh, Heather, we were starting to talk about getting the balance right, I think, is where we were headed. And, and I'm really curious, given all that the research you've done and the work that you do, obviously, we, we need to try to tackle climate change. At the same time, we need to recognize our energy security. So if this roadmap doesn't quite meet, hit the mark, and I, I would be curious to know where you think it misses specifically and what we might be able to do in the short term to fix it. 
So there's a few things, you know, that it could do well, for example, tax credits for carbon capture. But I think what people need to appreciate and the evidence is all around us is that we are still an oil and gas and coal dependent world. 80% of the world's primary energy comes from those sources. So you're not going to get off that, you know, it's taken us a century to accumulate that infrastructure. We're not going to get off that infrastructure very soon. So we need to think more outside of Canada and think of the global context that we're operating in. When, when we talk about energy security, what you're talking about is reliable and affordable energy. And that is fundamental to every single thing about human development, about child mortality, about literacy, about gender equality. So why I get concerned when I feel like the government is trying to pull the plug on fossil fuels before we have other, you know, uh, systems that we can use is because last in 2020, we spent 4% of global GDP on energy. And this year, it's going to be 13% of global GDP. That's about eight and a half trillion dollars that we're putting into energy, not because we don't have the gas and the coal and the oil and the wind and the the uranium, but because we made it more expensive by restricting supply. Think of what you could do for human development if you're spending that $8 trillion on housing, on food, on education and health, instead of just putting it into more expensive energy. And that's why energy security matters. And that's why Canada has to think beyond it's Paris Accord commitments and think about being that reliable supporter to our allies. So does that mean just extending, I mean, obviously, you know, all the data out there, or at least all those, the reports we read always set these dates of, you know, must net zero by 2050, or uh, is this just mean that a country like Canada needs to find a way to balance its energy production needs as a global supplier, as well as its at climate commitments, that there may be a room for a compromise in there? There's absolutely room for for compromise. And if you look at any ESG or environmental social governance rankings, Canadian oil companies do well. Now, the problem we've had with Canadian oil is the oil sands, and they are a relatively uh, intense, uh, carbon intense barrel. Uh, But there has been work, and even this report acknowledges this, showing how we have gotten emissions per barrel down. It's more competitive on global markets. But, you know, the oil sands companies have a very... Uh, you know, firm plan of how to reduce that by 2050. Can they do it, you know, by the government's timeline of 2030? I doubt it because it's hard to do anything these days with costs and inflation and an inability to get things on the supply. Yes, we invest in small modular reactors so that they can use that for their, you know, to heat, to get the oil out of sands instead of natural gas. But it takes time to build those things. And it also takes money. So there's lots we can do to reduce oil sands carbon intensity and the oil sands companies are committed to it. But the biggest thing Canada could do right now is get beautiful BC LNG, uh, you know, into the hands of Asia. Clearly, if we're going to wean ourselves or we're going to wean Europe off Russia's LNG or Russia's natural gas, rather, uh, that supply is going to have to come from somewhere else. Are you are you concerned at all that under these new rules, um, under these new targets or these new ambitions, that investment in all of that stuff is just not going to happen, that a lot of Canada's energy is simply going to sit sit there and not be part of the, of the solution to uh, to energy security worldwide? So right now, there is still a supply and demand oil markets. We are still 
you're drawing down inventory, not producing enough oil land. And this is just going to become increasingly untenable. It's already too expensive in Europe, you know, that some factories are shutting down in Asia as well. So it's my guess that in five years, if this gets much worse, public opinion will have changed, um, foreign policy will have changed, and and our allies will be pressuring us to be exporting more. We should probably start looking at how we might want to do that today. But at some point in the near future, if we don't do it for ourselves, our, our Americans, neighbors to the South, are going to start demanding it. So ultimately, then, I only have about a minute and a half left. So how, how do you balance the obvious needs to reduce our carbon emissions, uh, as outlined by many, many, many scientific studies, versus our need to to, you know, make like keep life affordable for us, be a fair place to live and, you know, take part in global energy security. Is there a balance there, you think? And is it just extending the timeline a bit? Well, I mean, you, you probably will have to extend the timeline a bit if you're realistic. And if you look at, you know, even IEA forecasts, um, but there's so much we can do and we are doing positive things. Carbon capture is one. LNG to displace Coal is another immediate obvious one. Developing hydrogen resources, which Canada could do very cheaply, is a third. And the fourth is uranium and nuclear, which this government still isn't, you know, all that enthusiastic about. But uh, nuclear is is coming to come to you know shine in the sun uh, once again. New reactors are being announced all the time. Small modular reactor plan was announced by a number of provinces today. Uran- and Canada has the best uranium deposits in northern Saskatchewan in the world, the richest grade uranium. So we are well positioned to be a leader in energy security uh, and, and low carbon energy in the world. At, you know, if we kind of double down on nuclear. Heather Exner-Piro, thank you so much for your insight. I appreciate it tonight. Thanks for having me.